right, turn to now Revelation 16. And we have had quite a quite an extensive lead up to this passage. Um, really, I could put it this way: the long anticipated bowl judgments, the judgments that are represented by these bowls that have uh, the wrath of God. Remember, last week in Revelation 15, we ended that passage with this solemn procession of these angels getting ready to pour out the bulls of judgment. It may seem strange to use that word anticipated, especially after we work through um, all the bull judgments tonight, and then we see clarification of the last two in the upcoming chapters um, of 17 and 18. To use the word anticipated, that anybody would anticipate with these horrible, terrible judgments seems strange. And yet the reason why I say that is really God's word presents it that way, is God's people are ready and, and waiting. And we have um, had a number of chapters of lead up, and it's almost like, let's let's get to this final aspect. And here we are, uh, because they represent God's final purge of the earth that has to take place before the kingdom is ushered in. Folks, this world is terrible. It's broken. It's dark. We know that. And it has to be refined and prepared for the return of our king. And so this last, this, this last, these bold judgments which come at the end of the tribulation, that even in the Old Testament, this part of the tribulation was referred to as the great tribulation. This is the worst of it, and it is terrible indeed. But they, at the same time, as we read through these judgments and understand them further, we're going to see that um, heaven makes it clear that they're a just response, that they are a fair response toward the unrepentant sin of mankind. And as terrible as they are, we need to keep that in focus. And so tonight's, the title of, of this message tonight from Revelation 16 is True and Just Are God's Judgments. And we just really need to agree with God on this. That sin really is as terrible as he says that it is. And it's deserving of his full judgment if people won't turn from their sin. And so that's what we're going to see, the full judgment, the full wrath of God poured out on sin. And it's not going to be pretty, but it will be instructive. Because first of all, God's judgments will be just and effective. And they will affect all nature and man. And let's just start with verses 4 through seven actually i'm sorry let's just let's read verses five through seven and we'll pray and we'll continue to look at the whole chapter together i heard the angel in charge of the water say just are you O holy one who is and who was for you brought these judgments for they have shed the blood of saints and prophets and you have given them blood to drink it is what they deserved and i heard the altar saying yes lord god the almighty True and just are your judgments. Lord, as we get into this chapter tonight, it will be disturbing for us. To It'll be really hard to comprehend this level of judgment that's poured out upon the earth. And yet, help us as your people to understand that 
as strange as it may seem, we should still anticipate this as the earth and as mankind is refined in order for the kingdom, the millennial kingdom, to be ruled over by Jesus Christ, for that to be ushered in, and for you to deal with sin and to draw your people, the nation of Israel, and um, the people that are left of the world that turn to you, draw them back to you and point them to you. It's going to take terrible things to, to do that. But help us to recognize that all things that you allow, terrible and awful situations that come up, even in our lives, that you have a purpose for them and that you will refine us. As we even saying tonight, rejoice in the Lord in that refining process. That you use all things for our good. Help us to keep that in mind as we go through these things tonight. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. God's judgments are judgments are true and just, and they're just, they're appropriate, and they're effective in accomplishing what He intends to accomplish, and they will affect all the world and all mankind. And so again, you had that solemn processional of those seven angels, right, with their bowls of wrath in heaven, going to the point where they were ready to um, pour them out. And then you have it here in verse 1 of chapter 16, you have God himself announcing this long-awaited time. Even as we've gone through this study, uh, three chapters ago, we probably thought, okay, now we're going to go to the bull judgments. And then there was this interlude, and then there was this interlude as it explained further, the cosmic battle of Satan and, and the Lord and all of that, and then gave us a preview of what we would expect uh, for the rest of the book. And now we're to the point where we have these bold judgments described, and God says it's time. Go, pour out on the earth the seven bowls of the wrath of God, the full wrath of God experienced on the earth. And and again, folks, for those that take a different position than we do as far as the pre-trib and, and pre-millennial position, um, any any thought of being on the earth at this time is terrible. Who would want to be on that? Who would want to be on the earth at this time with these terrible judgments? I should, somebody pointed out last week, and I think it's important to note, where are the people of God at this point? Well, um, and I had to go back and remind myself. According to the information, the evidence that we've seen, uh, they've either been martyred, the 144,000, or they've been kept and hidden away during this time. So there are those that at this point are still following God faithfully. They're on the earth. But remember, it was said that they would be protected. It was told that they would flee to the caves and to the mountains, and God is protecting them in the midst of these terrible things. But there is no protection for those that have followed the beast. We're going to see that. So the angels are commanded to pour out the wrath of God in a sequential manner, one after another. And so we see that starting in verse 2. The first angel pours his wrath. And always note where they're pouring or what they're pouring their wrath on. And that will give a key to the rest of the judgment. Verse 2, so the first angel went. And again, in a sobering, solemn way, he pours out his bowl on the earth. And as he does this, harmful and painful sores come upon, came upon the people who bore the mark of the beast and worshipped its image. It results, this first bowl of wrath, 
they might, the way that the Greek describes the bulls, these might also be considered vials. However, it allows the angel to pour out the judgment of God. And it will result in what's described here as really terribly painful swords on all of those who thought they were taking the easy way and following the beast and taking on his mark. And so they will now receive these very painful and terrible boils or sores, really not to be too intense here, but these really seem to refer to inflamed open sores that will not heal. It will be excruciating pain for these folks. And they thought that they were going the right way and taking the easy way, like I said before. And now they will suffer torment because of that. Isn't it true that whatever direction, whatever ways Satan tempts us in, when we fall for those things, and, and certainly people that reject God and follow after Satan's way, they think that they're experiencing the best of life many times and following um, after the, the ways of the enemies of God is best for them. And yet in the end, Satan's ways are never beneficial for mankind. They will always result in pain and sorrow and eternal destruction. And, you know, I want I want my sons to realize this as, as there's always those temptations to stray away from the ways of God, to stray away from that narrow path and go. We know the wide, the wide gate and the wide way that leads to destruction. It seems so wonderful and it seems so easy. And in the end, there is much pain and suffering. And we've all dealt with people who thought that they were headed the right way and they rejected God or they disobeyed God and followed after other things and they regretted it. And they had that bitter, bitter taste in their mouth of the judgment of God and the results of their wrong choices. Following after Satan's ways always leads a bitter taste and regret. And certainly in this case, these awful sores are the consequences of rejecting God, following after the beast. So even though the people of God were martyred and had those and, and were killed for his sake, it's not going to be easy for the followers of the false Christ either. They will experience torture and pain. Then the second angel pours his bull into the sea, and all the earth oceans turn to blood. And it says, verse 3, the second angel poured out his bowl into the sea, and it became, and I know this is intense and gross, but it became like the blood of a corpse. And every living thing died that was in the sea. Again, just to describe this, not to be too um, vivid, but as that thickened blood that it describes there becomes actually a part of the sea, there's nothing that can live in that. And the marine life, all this time, not just a third of the marine life, but this time, all marine life within the seas is gone and is taken out and is killed off. All that is left. I don't know if you've followed recent news. We, we follow um, a children's news program called World Watch, and we try to watch it every day. It gives um, news stories from a Christian perspective, and it's very helpful. One thing that they brought up recently was something called the red tide algae. I don't know if you've heard of this in Florida and, and maybe in the Gulf of Mexico as well. It's Perennia brevis. 
It's, that's that official title of this organism. And um, it is, it leaves the water with a red tint. As you would think, that's why they call it the red tide organism. But the, the terrible aspect of this is that it kills many fish by producing a potent toxin called brevitoxin that affects the central nervous systems of the fish. And this toxin then can also affect birds, sea turtles, mammals, and other marine animals that become in contact with this terrible organism, this, this, this toxic algae. And many call these blooms red tides. Scientists refer to them as harmful algae bloom. And one of the best known of these occurs every summer along Florida's Gulf Coast. And they actually showed pictures of the amount of fish that had died because of this red um, algae, this red tide. And it was terrible. And the, the residents that were there in the midst of this would tell them about the awful smell and the terrible nature of this. And that it affected the, the fishing um, industry down there in Florida as well. Uh, the toxins that come in even make, they kill the fish and they make shellfish dangerous to eat for humans. So it's really destructive. Now, could God allow that to go worldwide? in all the oceans and have the same effect? Certainly. Maybe one way that he accomplishes this. And I think that's a, a good possibility. But is it just as possible that this really could be some something like actual blood? That's true. It could be. We won't know. And thankfully, folks, we won't be on Earth to have to find out. I'm not going to want to test the waters and find out. But it is going to have devastating consequences upon the the oceans of the world and all of the sea life will die. Uh, and that's going to be tragic, and that's going to be um, a, a great tragedy and weight upon the people of the world. If you think about an occasional whale that beaches on the, on the, on the beach and, and off the seashore and for whatever reason, these things happen, and you hear about uh, uh, marine life that are killed. That's why everybody loves to go, by the way, to SeaWorld, is because everybody loves to see marine life and animal life in this way. Nobody wants to see this happen, and yet the judgment of God will be stark. And people will, can you imagine dozens of beached whales? And the, 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 the beaches, the sand of, of the beach that everyone loves to walk on, and enjoys that will be covered with dead organisms and the water will be red. Folks, this would be terrible. And yet it will be just. And that's what we're reminded in these next judgments as well as we continue on. It will affect worldwide nature and mankind. It will affect nature, but unfortunately we're going to see it will not change man in his rebellion against God. And look at this next one, verse 4. The third angel poured out his bowl into the rivers and the springs of waters, and they became blood. And so this third angel pours out not his bowl of wrath into the oceans, but into all fresh water supplies, folks. And this means that all fresh water is contaminated. It means that it's made that, that people can't drink it. They can't find fresh water anymore. And as we even contemplate that, it may seem outlandish. That's cruel. That's terrible. How can God allow this to happen? 
And so there is an angel here that uh, John makes clear is in charge of the waters. As a side note, isn't it interesting? You know, we we don't get a, as much information about angels as maybe that we would like. I think there's a purpose for that. I think Hebrews brings that up, is that the focus should be on Christ and not on angels. Because let's face it, we tend to be distracted and we tend to wonder about things. And, and, and that's understandable. But ultimately, our focus should be on Christ. But it is interesting how many angels um, are in this book. And then uh, even an angel that is in charge of the waters, what that tells me is, is that there are angels in charge of different aspects of God's creation that he's put over them. And this is the angel of all of the waters. And so there's a lot of angels out there that God uses. And they are innumerable. And they do have specific duties. So. This angel, in case we were to read this and say, well, that's terrible. How could God allow this to happen? This angel says, wait a minute. This isn't unfair. God knows what he's doing. And I'm, as the one that's in charge of all the waters, I give testimony that this is God's work. And he says, just are you. You are right. You are just, O Holy One, who is and who was. And notice again, he doesn't say who is to come, because this is referring to Jesus Christ. And we don't often think of Christ again in relation to these judgments. This is the wrath of God, but it's also Jesus allowing these things and working, um, commanding these things to take place. And so it doesn't need to say who is to come, because we're on the threshold of that, and he is there standing with um, the faithful witnesses. So you are right, O Holy One, the one who is separate from all of his creation, who is holy and pure, who does not do what is wrong. So that points out that none of these judgments are wrong in any way. It's not God overcompensating because he's angry and he's upset. You know how when we get upset, we tend to sometimes overcompensate for that if we're not careful. This isn't God losing his temper and just, just blasting the earth. The angel reminds us, this is just and deserved. For you have brought these judgments. Again, this is Christ who is in charge. And as much and, and as appropriate as, as it is to focus on the love and the gentleness and the humility of Christ and his um, sacrifice for our sins and all that he's done for us, folks, we can't lose sight of this aspect either, that when his judgment comes, it will be fierce and terrible against those that have rejected him. He's brought these judgments. Well, how could he do this? Verse 6, they have shed the blood of saints and prophets. We just saw 144,000 of faithful witnesses that were tortured and, and, and had their blood shed for testimony of Christ. And it's these people that are being judged now that had a part in this. And so the angel says, they've shed the blood of God's people. They deserve to have nothing but blood to drink. Again, terrible, but it's just. It's right for what they've done against God's people. The persecution that we even face today, maybe, it's hard. We don't like, we, we hopefully, we won't ever face the persecution that we see. And, well, we know that we won't. We won't face the persecution and the terrible consequences of being in the tribulation and being faithful for Christ. But even today, there are consequences for naming the name of Christ and being faithful to him. 
And um, it, it's hard to see people that are angry and caustic and um, really being stirred up to uh, violent action just because we name Christ. It almost doesn't make sense to us, but we know that it's the case. We sense the opposition against our witness for Christ. But we must not let that discourage us. Remember, folks, that those people will be dealt with in God's timing. And it will be terrible. So pray for them. That they'll trust Christ and they won't have to go through this. And then the angel says at the end of verse 6, he makes it very clear. This is what they deserve. They're getting their just desserts, as we would say. And then I heard the altar saying, yes, Lord God, the Almighty, true and just are your judgments. And if this is the um, altar of incense where the martyrs were, then these martyrs are recognizing, yes, as our blood was shed in the name of Christ, now it is appropriate that these rebels drink blood and have no water to drink. Lord God, the Almighty, Jesus is our Lord, and we should bow the knee before him. He is fully God. He's the creator. He gets to decide in the end what happens to his creation and how it's judged. And he is the all-powerful, the almighty. And so we, as we read these things, our only response is, Lord, you know. And we know that you do all things rightly. You're true. You're just. You're righteous. And these judgments are a appropriate upon these people who have rejected you and we must have that that perspective folks as we continue we're commanded to well it continues on the fourth angel verse 8 poured out his bowl this time on the sun interestingly and it was allowed to scorch people with fire so as the angel pours out this bowl on the sun it's not to quench it right and you hear um, scientists and people today speculate how much longer is the sun going to be around, and what would happen one day if it if it if it gave out, or you know the black hole and all these sorts of things. But what we see at the end times is it's not going to decrease, but it's going to increase in its strength. Um, and I'm sure you've heard uh, correctly, scientists point out, astronomers um, that, especially Christian astronomers that study the skies and study the earth that the earth is the perfect distance from the sun. If it were any closer, we'd all burn up, right? If it were any farther away, we'd all freeze to death. But we're not, at this point, in, in God's judgments, uh, people are going to feel what it would be like, really, to be closer to the sun as the um, bowl is poured out and it fuels the blaze of the sun to more intensity that scorches the earth and all those who dwell in it that aren't protected by God. It is interesting here that they do recognize in this that this is of God. And since they recognize that it was of God, certainly they would have the proper response. What would the proper response be? To repent. They're literally having their skin scorched and they're being burned, you would think at this point, as people realize, and they realize it's from God, Lord, save us, we repent. 
And it does seem to indicate that the opportunity to repent would still be there. But they refuse. It's remarkable. Instead of repenting, they will curse God. Verse 9, they were scorched by the fierce heat. And they cursed the name of God who had his power over these plagues. They recognized that this judgment was from him, and they still raised their fists and blasphemed. They did not repent. They did not worship him and give him glory. Doesn't that indicate that even though these folks had opportunity to repent, they refused? Folks, this punishment is just. They refuse. They make the choice to refuse. God, in these terrible circumstances, they continue on trying to go their own way. The fifth angel pours out his bowl, interestingly, on the throne of the beast. And soon after he does that, the world goes dark. It's like that. And its kingdom was plunged into darkness. It says here, people gnawed their tongues in anguish and cursed again the God of heaven for their pain and sores. And they still did not repent of their deeds. The world goes dark. The kingdom, the beast cannot control even the light. The, the lighting in his kingdom as God totally takes out. He affected the sun before. I don't know if this is like some sort of eclipse. Or um, it certainly isn't an extinguishing of the sun. But somehow, miraculously, everything goes dark. You know, we're so concerned today, and rightly so, about what would happen in a power grid blackout. And you hear um, concerns that I think are, are certainly uh, appropriate about enemy nations. What would happen if they sent one of those satellites and, and did their shenanigans to where it would affect the power grids? And, and how much we would be incapacitated without access to electricity and without access to um, to the Internet and all kinds of things that literally it would make things so difficult for us. Some people say it would bring us back to the Middle Ages again. Well, I certainly hope that doesn't happen before the Lord returns or in my lifetime, but it is a concern. But folks, this is far beyond any blackout that we would experience today. It's terrible. And a little more details uh, here. It's not clear as it describes the people's anguish. Is this darkness that will somehow, supernaturally, God will allow further excess pain? Or is it that it compounds and aggravates the existing pain and the sores that the earth dwellers have already experienced? I think that's probably the better interpretation of this. They're going through all these difficult things, these terrible sores, um, having no water and being thirsty. And then on top of this, they're stumbling around, they can't see. It would certainly aggravate this experience and be so much worse than if they were able to see. I think of a, a couple times as a young family when we were in Maryland and sickness, you know, every so often you, um, the sickness, uh, flu, colds, whatever, spread and uh, throughout the church. And eventually it would come to, to our family. Uh, we were actually we actually stayed pretty pretty healthy, but it seemed like there was a couple people around the office, particularly at the church, that just felt like even though they were sick, they had to come in. Like, you really don't have to do that, but they would you know bring that with them, and eventually would filter into our family. And there was one I remember one time where we all got sick, 
I mean, it was all of us. And uh, we were nauseous and we were weak. And my wife, we, my wife and I could barely get out of bed. I remember the secretary calling um, us and I had left my phone downstairs. And so I'm literally almost crawling, you know, weekly trying to get out of bed and go down and, and answer this. And my kids are all sick and it just laid us out. It was miserable. And had to tell her, look, we, we, we're no good for anything. We're, we're out for a while. And that, that was um, difficult enough. There were other times uh, where we lived where um, the power grid and the power connections to the power lines weren't as strong because we kind of lived away from the rest of the neighborhood on the back of the property. And there was one major power line that came uh, quite a distance from the neighborhood houses to our house. And so it seemed like whenever there was a violent storm or a thunderstorm, or whatever, we were one of the first ones to lose power. And there were a couple of times that we lost power overnight and we had to hunker down. I think uh, one time it was in the winter and we had to all go down to a room where the wood stove was. And there was and it was kind of exciting for the boys kind of camping out, whatever. But it lasted for a couple of days. The excitement started to wear off and we were really tired of it at that point, not having power, not being in the dark. Well, I, I, the reason I bring those things up is those things were difficult enough experienced separately apart from each other. But I can't imagine what it would have been like to have been that sick and also without power and it being dark. We would have been miserable. And so you can just have a little bit of an understanding how these folks that go through this are miserable and helpless, and yet they still refuse to turn back to God. It's mind-boggling. But it's true. Well, his judgments will affect the whole world and justly and fairly, but they'll also prepare the world for the future kingdom that is coming. And they will prepare the world for the final battle with the Lord, verse 12. And we see in these last two judgments, they're presented here. We've had a preview of them in the, the chapter previous to this. And now we're going to hear more about these last two bowls, and they will continue to be further explained in the upcoming chapters. So we don't have to give every detail here because we'll continue to have understanding as we go along. But they continue to get more and more intense. You see here how these bowl judgments somewhat reflect the plagues that God used against the Egyptians, but they're so much more intense and so much more focused in their judgment than those ever were. Well, here's the sixth bowl, the sixth vial. Verse 12, the sixth angel poured out his bowl. And this is on a specific geographical location, interestingly enough, the river Euphrates. And the water was dried up to prepare the way for the kings of the east. Now, this is a mighty river that's been around in the Middle East uh, since really even creation, even in Genesis and the account of creation. We have Euphrates mentioned many uh, battles and, and many events in world history taking place there. And so when that river is dried up, it will have consequences for maybe the whole world, but certainly that area. But there is a purpose for that because it brings the final barrier of uh, kings from all over the world then to um, come and prepare for a great battle. And he says further, and I saw, come in, this is really strange, one of the strangest verses in this whole chapter. 
coming out of the mouth of the dragon. Remember him, Satan? Out of the mouth of the beast, the false, the antichrist, and out of the mouth. And this for the first time, that second beast that we saw earlier, this is the first time that he's called in this book the false prophet. Now, I've already referred to him as that, but he is the helper of the beast that brings that image, that idol of the beast to life and makes that idol talk and condemns Christians and um, and promotes getting the mark of the beast. That false prophet is the one that is in charge of that. And so these men speak, or these figures, excuse me, speak. And it says three unclean spirits, like frogs, for they are demonic spirits, performing signs, who go abroad to the kings of the whole world to assemble them for battle on the great day of God the Almighty. These charlatans, spiritual charlatans. You know, Satan doesn't have anything new, right? We know that. And he it's almost like he's a, when it comes to um, God and God's creation, Satan's almost like a great school child that says, I can do that, I can do that. And he uh, puts these things together. He has this um, antichrist who is supposed to resemble Christ and being risen from the dead and from his wound and this false prophet that's supposed to represent religion. And isn't interesting, uh, in contrast, just think about this, in contrast to the true word who is Jesus Christ, that beautiful passage in the first chapter of John where it describes the Son as the exact utterance, expression of the Father. And the work of spirit and comforting and helping and guiding, it's wonderful. It, it encourages us. It's a beautiful picture. Jesus speaks the words of God. He is the word of God. And in contrast to that, when Satan and his minions try to speak, well, look what we can do. Watch what we can do. The best that they can do is croak out frogs. That's it. Ugly, nasty. There's no beauty in this. This is supposed to disturb us. And it talks not just these are literally frogs, but it does describe these are demons. And it says demonic spirits. Again, the best that Satan can do and perform is ugly and terrible because he's rejected God. But they will perform signs. And even as terrible and as uh, disturbing as this picture is of these Satan and his minions speaking out their own words, it's still going to affect, and people that have rebelled against God are still going to follow after these false words. They're going to be affected by them. They'll go abroad, and they will be persuaded to come. The kings of the whole earth, of the different nations that have rebelled against God, will unite together. And they will come for a final battle on the great day of God the Almighty. And we're going to find out more about that soon. But we've already had a little taste of it in the preview, and we're told more in verse 16. But now something really interesting happens. It's like there's a pause, and somebody then says this, a parenthesis in verse 15. Behold, I am coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake, keeping his garments on, that he might not go about naked. 
and be seen exposed. Well, this is strange. What does this have to do with the whole picture here? Well, who and, and who's speaking, by the way? I, I will throw that out tonight. I've been doing a lot of the speaking. Who is this that's interrupting this um, narrative about this sixth whole judgment? Anybody have any ideas? Rick? They ruined it, yeah. <laughs> well, yeah. Uh, they, they obviously then, yes. It, it, from what we can tell, well, why would this be Jesus? Well, remember, he's had the same language when he spoke to the churches. And, and, and Jesus is still here in the presence of John while John is seeing all this. And it's at this point where just Jesus just interrupts and he's basically saying to his followers, to his people, um, that they don't want any part of this and that when he comes, he will come quickly. And he's pointing out that for those that are faithful to him, he's talking to the churches. He's giving a reminder to the churches that he's talked about earlier, that he's given to. And he's saying, stay awake, be alert, and keep your garments. Those are those garments of righteousness. He's basically saying here, don't be caught in the midst of sin when I come. You'll be embarrassed. You'll be ashamed. These things are going to happen. These terrible things are going to happen. I'm going to deliver you from them. But you, in the meantime, stay faithful. Don't get caught unaware or you're going, he says, naked and be exposed. You're going to be shamed. You're going to be embarrassed when I come. And if you're caught in the middle of sin, uh, it won't be pretty. There'll be forgiveness. You know, we'll be in heaven. We won't have to experience this. But Jesus takes um, this point to just kind of interrupt and remind us, all of us, don't get caught without your robes of, of right now. When I say don't get caught without your robes of righteousness on, now we do, we will be given robes of righteousness that are eternal. And we do have the righteousness of Christ that we can't lose. You understand that? But in their daily living, don't be caught unawares because Jesus could come at any time and all of this could start up. And we would look forward to that. But we want to be ready. Jesus is saying, be ready. And then after that, verse 16, they assembled back to the narrative here of this great battle. They assembled them at the place that in Hebrew is called Armageddon. Um, this is has the idea, that last part of that uh, Greek word is Megiddo. And it really, from what we can tell, there is an area. In fact, I, I have some information here. It's an important town of ancient Palestine, Megiddo, overlooking the what was formerly the Valley of Jezreel in Bible times. It's about 18 miles southeast in northern Israel. Um, it's 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 southeast of Nazareth. If you look at your maps, and its strategic location is at the crossing of two military and trade routes, and gives the city an importance far beyond its side. Size, excuse me. Um, and it seems as if the word Armageddon is derived from Megiddo. And the prefix har or arm, it means hill in Hebrew. So it's hill of Megiddo. 
this may very well be what is talking. It's obviously a very specific place where a specific battle will happen. It seems as if this area is what uh, is referred to here. And it's interesting. Um, I read a description. There have been throughout world history over 10, uh, is it maybe 15, maybe over 15 different battles that have taken place in this valley throughout world history. It's a very famous place for battles to take place. But this, all the way back, even with the Egyptians, there was a battle in this in this valley. But this will be the last one, and it'll be the most remarkable. And it'll also be the most terrible. You remember the description last week and the blood that would flow as these kings are defeated? And Christ will have, a as he comes, and he takes on all of these enemies, he will have a quick victory. And we're going to see more of that in the upcoming chapters. That is all a part of the sixth bowl judgment. The world will be prepared for the final battle of the Lord, and the Lord will win and be victorious. That's the most important part to know about the fourth, the sixth bowl, excuse me. But there's another one. The seventh angel, verse 17, poured his bowl into the air. And a loud voice came out from the temple. Now, if he's pouring in the air, folks, that means it affects everything. You can't get away from air. And so this quickly spreads all over the whole earth. And this is the last one. And it says, from the throne, from God himself, a loud voice came from the temple. It is done. And that will be a glorious thing to hear for God's followers, by the way. It'll be a terrible thing to hear for his enemies. Wonderful thing for those that follow him. And there were flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder and a great earthquake. Now, we've had a lot of that, but this will be of such intensity that it far outshines any of these other judgments that we've seen so far. And this earthquake will be so great, such as there has never been since man was on the earth. So great was that earthquake. And it is so great, in fact, verse 19, that the great city was split into three parts. It will actually alter the geography of that region. The cities of the nations fell, and God remembered Babylon the Great. Well, let me just stop there for a minute. You guys, do we remember what the great city is? It's not Babylon, because that's mentioned later. What? Rome? No, we've already talked about this. The great city. Jerusalem. So you have Jerusalem that's affected um, the people of God. The Jewish people are affected by this incredibly severe earthquake so much that it alters the topography of that whole region. And the Gentile cities around this region will fall and will be destroyed. And then it says at the same time, God remembered Babylon the Great to make her drain the cup of wine of the fury of his wrath. We're going to have a whole chapter and a half coming up to describe the end of Babylon. That seems best, and we'll get into more detail about this whole thing of Babylon. You hear people say, uh, talk about politically about a Babylon today and how people are trying to get uh, together a one world government, a Babylon that will rule over everything. And we can kind of be confused by this whole concept. We're going to have time um, to explain this in more detail soon. But basically, I think within the scripture, evidence here that it will it's a real city whether it'll be in the in the original place of of where babylon was i don't know but it seems like it'll be the great city of the antichrist it'll be his city
but it is representative of all of the power of the world system. It's wealth, it's entertainment, and it's military power. Uh, even as great as the United States has been, and even in world history, and even today, this Babylon under the rule of the Antichrist will be even greater and more powerful. And what we find is, is that God will deal with Babylon and he will pour out the fullness of his wrath, the wine of the fury of his wrath. Folks, that's intense. And the world system will feel the full heat and judgment of God for rebelling against him. Even today, it seems like the world and its rejection of God is winning, does it not? In our daily lives, in, in um, people, in, in, even in our country, in the fight against morals, and the fight against what God says is right, and these terrible things and, and these mass shootings and all, it just seems like evil is winning. And this is a reminder to us again that no, the evil of the world will meet God's full fury of his wrath, and it'll be terrible, but at the same time, it'll be wonderful because it will refine the world and rid us of all of this. And it will be so powerful that every island will fl flood away. That has the idea of collapsing into the ocean. And no mountains were to be found. They'll be level. And great hailstones. You know, when, when, you, when you have uh, relatives and family that go through hailstorms, sometimes you'll have people say, you won't believe these things were huge. They were the size of grapefruit. And we're like, wow, that sounds like in the bag. Well, well how about 100 pounds? Each, each hailstone. <laughs> that's just beyond imaginable. Folks, you get hit by one of those, that's going to hurt. In fact, that may just end your life entirely. But these great hailstones, they're real, 100 pounds each, and they fell from heaven on people. And would they repent even in this most intense form of judgment? They would not. They cursed God for the plague of the hail because the plague was so severe amazing that god's judgment can be poured out in this way and mankind still rejects him and wants to go their own way and blames him for it his judgments are terrible folks but let's all agree they're just they're right and they will prepare the world for the kingdom of God. And after this judgment, we're going to see as we continue to see more details about these last two judgments, full judgments, we'll see that Jesus will return. He'll stand on the mount and he will be victorious. And this has to take place before that happens. And so as terrible as these things are, we still anticipate their coming because we know what they represent. And they know what they will prepare the, the world for. And we look forward to that. A world that is cleansed and refined and ready for the coming of the king. Father, these are terrible things to contemplate. And yet they're necessary. So help us not to shy away from these things, but to realize that you will use this to refine the world and that you will deal justly with these that will continue to reject you. At the same time, there will be those after this that will turn back to you. We saw that this morning in Isaiah 25. 
that you will refine and that the people that are left will turn to you and recognize you as Lord, or recognize Christ as their Savior. And that will be glorious. And we look forward to that, anticipating that. And so we have to see these things through, even from a distance, in order to get to the wonderful end of the story that we're looking forward to at the end of this book. Help us to warn people. Help us to show the love of Christ by warning them of these things so that they'll turn to him. They won't have to experience these things. Or even worse, experience eternal judgment in the lake of fire. Help us to be diligent and faithful and warn people from these terrible things that they might glorify you and rejoice and worship you for all eternity. This we ask in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.